0: Our Old Testament reading tonight is from Genesis 9, verses 18 to 27. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Tonight we have a treat one of our seminary interns john kate will be bringing the word john is married to julianne and together they're expecting their first child this year and uh, even though they've been with us for about a year and a half it feels like they've been with us much longer Uh, both of them are volunteer regular volunteers for children's church Uh, john is helping uh, to lead the small group that they are a part of, and uh, John has also taught at uh, Gospel Perspectives Hour, which is uh, the educational hour before church on Sundays. And uh, I, I personally like John uh, because... <laughs> I know, that's, that's high praise, right? <laughs> I personally like John because he shares my passion for college football, uh, even though we cheer for uh, different conferences. It's okay. I'll forgive him for that. And uh, another thing that I really like about John is his intentionality. I see it uh, in the way he loves his wife. Uh, He's very thoughtful and deliberate about how he cares for her. And uh, even his involvement in our church. They didn't wait until they got to know people, but they dove right in and uh, became a part of our mix and uh, have been embraced. And even in, in the office... Uh, I see him poking his head around here and there, asking questions about theology and pastor and all that. And uh, I've been really blessed by him and the ways that he's trying to prepare himself uh, for his ministry life to come. So, John, why don't you come up? Um, I want to pray for you, brother, and uh, set you loose so you can bring the word. Let's pray. God, I give you thanks uh, for your servant, John. Thank you for the ways that you've been working in his life to prepare him for this moment. And I pray, God, that you would fill him with the joy of the Lord, that he would not be afraid uh, or even nervous, but God, that he would seek your approval and that, uh, Lord, to know that you already delighted him. And I pray that that would be the strength through which he brings the word today. I pray that you would bring clarity uh, in this time so that we can all benefit through your word in christ's name amen. amen thank
2: you Thank you so much mike and glenn i am so grateful for this opportunity i hope everyone uh this new year has started well mine and julianne's kicked off great uh, mike mentioned that i'm a college football fan not only did my tennessee volunteers roll northwestern in the outback bowl But the morning started off well because Julianne made brunch, breakfast casserole, with Trader Joe's pumpkin bread. And if you have yet to partake of Trader Joe's pumpkin bread, consider this your day of enlightenment. Uh, It's a wonderful thing. Uh, So uh, yeah, the New Year's was good. Uh, It actually made up for a lackluster New Year's Eve in 2014 uh, as Julianne and I celebrated with some Grace DC folks at the Queen Vic on H Street. Uh, They brought out, we each paid $20, and they brought out this family-style array of comfort food. And it was one of the best deals and experiences that we've had uh, in D.C. thus far. But this year, we had competing interests, as we were enticed by Jimmy Kimmel uh, to stay in and watch the college football playoff. Uh, In a commercial that must have aired thousands of times this fall, Somehow Jimmy made it seem cool to stay in on New Year's Eve rather than go out, and, uh, or at the very least, he encouraged everyone to incorporate watching the games into their New Year's Eve festivities. Both games turned out to be blowouts, and so by the end of the evening, Julianne and I kind of looked at each other saying, did we really stay in just for this? Did we miss uh, having a great time? And we learned two things in the process. First, we learned that any time we have a, an opportunity to enjoy a holiday tradition, with friends at a great local spot, we need to take advantage of it. And secondly, we had planned to stay up past midnight, but we found ourselves in bed by 11 (laughs) o'clock. So the combination of staying in and being in bed well before midnight uh, made us realize that we are way past our prime. So we, uh, we need to be held accountable to get out and have some fun next year. As Mike and I were discussing potential topics for tonight's message, given how this is the first Sunday of 2016, he encouraged me to help orient us to the new year. And uh, this got me thinking about all the different ways that we look to the new year, either as a way to turn the page in our lives or for a fresh start. The first and most obvious way we look to turn the page is by making resolutions that, uh, where we're looking to better our lives in some way, shape, or form. In addition, as we all know, DC is a transient place where we're often thinking about what's next on the horizon. Uh, Perhaps as you look ahead to the new year, you're hoping for career advancement, either through a promotion or through a new job. Uh, It's also likely that given the cost and difficulty of living in the city, you might be thinking about a move either outside the city or to a new city. It's also possible Uh, that you're coming into 2016 looking for relief. Sometimes we can look back on a calendar year and find ourselves overwhelmed at either the number of trials that we faced or just beaten up in general due to the reality of life in a broken world. In 2015, you might have faced pain so deep that it's hard to even speak of it or for a moment begin to believe that things might could be better. 2015 was a difficult year for us, as I lost four aunts and uncles within eight months of one another. It seemed like everywhere we turned, Julianne and I were facing news of death, which has left us longing for a better year ahead. And though many of us are either making resolutions, seeking new opportunities, or uh, looking for relief, we have to ask the question, can our longings for change really be met and change itself? Or are these longings a symptom of a deeper desire that's lodged within our hearts? Although the story that we read, I admit, is a bit unusual and somewhat distant from our culture today, we will see that a fresh start isn't necessarily all that it's cracked up to be. Though keeping a resolution, finding a new job, or moving to a new place might better our external circumstances, it will ultimately not bring about the fulfillment that we're we're hoping for. A fresh start will always be accompanied by a fresh need for God. In all of our longings for change, this story will show us that what our hearts are ultimately longing for can only be met by faith in the person of Christ. Though this story doesn't directly speak of Christ, Because Christ is the goal toward whom all of the Old Testament points, this story both leaves us longing for him and it finds its resolution and fulfillment in him. So let's go to Genesis and see how this story takes us there. In order to help us better interpret and apply the story that happens immediately after the flood, we need to go back and look at God's reasons, look at why God sent the flood in the first place. The New Testament describes the days leading up to the flood as some of the darkest in all of human history. So far in Genesis, the narrator has described the progression of evil in the world, which up to this point reaches its climax in Genesis 6. So I'm going to read from Genesis 6, starting in verse 5, and listen to these piercing words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. My, how far we've come from Genesis 1, where humans are declared as uh, being made in the image of God and given the lofty status as the pinnacle of creation. So how do we reconcile God's high regard for humans in Genesis 1 with what this text text says here in verse 6, that he was grieved to the point that he was sorry that he had made man on the earth to answer briefly as the great modern day prophetess, Alicia Beth Moore, better known to you and me as Pink, said, nothing else can break my heart like true love. That's gonna be the communion song later on. Uh, You have that to look forward to. If you haven't heard that song, the the clean version of course, then you'll listen to it on Spotify later. You'll see how it applies. For humans who are made in God's image, There is no greater pain than facing the rejection of a fellow image bearer. We hear news every day of hunger, natural disasters, and fatal accidents, all of which are terrible and provide great evidence that this world is not as it should be. But nothing brings greater grief and pain than the rejection or the betrayal of a fellow image bearer. And that's the case from God's perspective. Humans were the highest and the pinnacle of his creation Yet the betrayal and wickedness of his image bearers grieved God to the point that he was sorry that he had created us. People were experiencing intense physical pain as they labored and toiled on a ground that had been cursed. In the midst of their labor and toil, the ground was producing barely enough sustenance for human survival. But on a deeper level, as Genesis 6 describes, the people were experiencing the dire consequences of spiritual bondage. And as a result, Genesis 6 marks death as God's plan in response to the wickedness of humanity. However, in the midst of these dark days, in the midst of this immense suffering, God did not abandon his creation altogether. He did not leave it alone, as Genesis 5 records the birth of a comforter. I'm gonna read in Genesis 5, starting in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name is a wordplay between the terms comfort and rest. As his father proclaimed, Noah's birth instills, instills hope that, these people, that the people would find deliverance from life in the miserable state as they knew it. And this hope is only heightened in Genesis 6-8. Though God has just pronounced that he would destroy the earth in the form of a flood, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's favor upon Noah was not because of anything inherent within Noah, but instead through Noah, God chose a representative whom by his grace, he would carry on the human race. And the following chapters record God's response to this pervasive evil by sending a catastrophic flood that would destroy all living creatures with the exception of Noah, his family, and two of each animal. And 150 days later, the flood subsides and God steps to center stage and he makes three pronouncements. First in Noah, he renews Adam's mandate. The same cultural mandate that was given to Adam in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth was given to Noah here in Genesis 9. As I mentioned earlier, Noah's name is a wordplay between comfort and rest. Noah was now, through this mandate, he was now the the new representative of the human race. And so when the original audience is reading this story and they read of Noah being given Adam's mandate, their minds are immediately going back to the Garden of Eden. They're thinking perhaps that Noah is gonna bring relief where Adam's curse, because of, because of the result of Adam's curse. Perhaps Noah will succeed where Adam failed. Perhaps he'll bring about deliverance from this curse upon the ground. Second, God makes a covenant with Noah in which he promises to never flood the earth again. And third, he sends a rainbow, which is a sign of this covenant by which God would remember his promise. And this brings us to the latter half of our passage uh, in Genesis 9. Though God has judged the world because of sin, Noah the Comforter found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The earth has been wiped clean, and Noah and his family have witnessed one of the greatest acts of deliverance, if not the greatest act of deliverance, in being spared from the waters of the raging flood. Now Noah and his family exit the ark, and they participate in the ultimate fresh start. We're gonna read about what happens, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Here the narrator is simply giving us background information that's gonna come into play later. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah exits the ark, he's given Adam's mandate, and he proceeds to plant a vineyard, drink of of its wine, and then removes his wardrobe. While there are many portions of the story that are distant from our culture today, I think it's pretty safe to say that what happens here is very relatable, especially on the hills on New Year's Eve. Brad Paisley recorded a song, I like to be versatile in my uh, music illustrations. He recorded a song, that, a song that personifies alcohol and its influence about 10 years ago. It talks about how uh, it can influence, it's influenced kings and world leaders, it made Hemingway write like he did, and it can also make you put that lamp shade on your head. So evidently this substance was every bit as powerful back then as it is today. But notice that verse 20, it says that Noah began to be a man of the soil. Another way of phrasing this Another is that he was the first to plant a vineyard. This is suggesting that viniculture, the science of producing wine, I new, learned a new vocab word in my study, uh, it's not a re- it was a new, not a renewed activity. Th- this means Noah had likely not, he had not developed a tolerance for wine, and it's also likely that he didn't understand its powerful influence, which makes it a little bit easier to see why he went too far. So as I mentioned earlier, before Noah's birth, the land produced just enough sustenance for human survival, but that was about it. Now Noah subdues the land to produce wine, which is given to comfort, cheer and gladden the heart. And physically speaking, he does provide a little bit of relief from the curse upon the ground. So next time that you go out to a winery in Virginia, just remember that you have Noah to thank. So the people were looking to Noah for relief, and though he provided some physical relief, this all elusive spiritual relief still escaped them. Let's see what happens when Noah's sons walk upon him in this stupor. And Ham, the father of Canaan, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now we come to the story that culturally speaking is a bit more distant distant from us. Now let's remember that scripture commends the use of wine in moderation, but it gives sober warnings for its use in excess. But as we see in this passage, the, plan- the blame is not placed on Noah, but on Ham. Noah might have occasioned Ham's sin, but Ham is the one who is culpable. After Noah ex- exposed himself, it says that Ham saw his, na- his father's nakedness and told his brothers. Some take this term Saul to mean that he engaged in homosexual activity with his father, while others simply refer to it to the act of seeing. Because verse 23 uses the same term as Shem and Japheth, not seeing the nakedness of their father, I think we can take this to to refer to the physical act of seeing. And you might ask, why is this act of Ham seeing his father's exposed body, leaving it uncovered and then telling his brothers so frowned upon? There are two reasons, the first comes from the text and the second comes from ancient Near East culture. Though Ham's act is condemned, condemned, Shem and Japheth are commended for their careful handling of the situation. They took the garment, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father, and they did so intentionally so that they would not see his exposed body. Second, it's also very easy for us to overlook the seriousness of dishonoring a father in the ancient Near East culture. You could picture this as one step below murder, and maybe even in some cases it could be worse than murder. Ham not only dishonors his father, but he increases the dishonor by sharing about what happens with his brothers rather than just taking care of the situation himself. And after reading about the actions of Noah's sons, it's only natural to ask what's gonna happen when he wakes up. We'll read in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah finds out what happened, most likely through Shem and Japheth recounting the incident to him. And this incites Noah to foretell of the destinies of each of his sons. And while Noah's pronouncement might be confusing, what's happening here is that God, through Noah, is simply describing the repopulation of the earth in spiritual terms. So we'll start with Canaan, the son of Ham, in verse 25. He said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Notice that Canaan, not Ham, is cursed. And earlier when we read the, the first couple of verses in the passage, the narrator made, went out of his, his way to mention that Ham was the father of Canaan. And so Canaan, not Ham, is cursed. And this is because curses and blessings in the Old Testament typically have their descendants in view. There is a corporate solidarity that accompanies families and their descendants in, this, in the Old Testament. And this pattern is also followed to a degree in the New Testament. Just as the youngest son of Noah wrongs his father, so the curse falls on the youngest son, the youngest son of Ham. In the Old Testament, this prophecy toward Canaan comes to light as the Canaanites are known for their defiance and their disregard for the God of the Bible. Canaan becomes the promised land from which God drives out the wicked Canaanites and it gives to his people to live under his blessing. Now let's proceed to Shem in verse 26. Notice that he doesn't directly bless Shem, but he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Noah asks that God be recognized and honored in all of Shem's life and victories. Here Shem is identified solely in the context of his relationship with God. And from the line of Shem comes Abraham, the nation of Israel, and eventually Jesus Christ, the people through whom God would carry out his blessings of redemption into the world. And finally, Noah asked God to enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The descendants of Japheth refer to the Gentile nations who are also later grafted into this promise by faith. And now we come to the application. You might be asking how could such a bizarre story possibly relate to our lives? How can a son's refusal to cover up his father's exposed body possibly be applicable for Western culture as we know it today? And though the specific actions of covering up a father's exposed body are a bit removed from our culture. I'll admit that. It's the significance of these actions that have great implications for our lives. In the story about Noah and his sons coming off the ark and attempting a fresh start, we learn both about ourselves and we learn about God. About ourselves, as Lloyd Shadrach, who is a pastor friend in Nashville, he commented on this passage and said, we learn that wherever we go There we are. I don't know about you, but I am the poster child for the grass is greener mentality. I always find myself looking ahead to the next season of life, uh, the next event, always thinking that something better lies ahead. For Noah and his sons who received the ultimate fresh start, it didn't take long for things to unravel again. Why is that the case? Though they were participating in the ultimate fresh start and Noah was given to Adam's mandate. Noah was given Adam's mandate. He was operating in a fallen and a broken world. And ever since the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, all humans are born with this dedicated bent towards sin, which remains with us as long as we live. And the Bible later describes this as the flesh. Ultimately, the reason why Noah and his sons failed was because of what was on the inside, not because what was on the periphery or what had been removed. And the same is true with us, is the problem is in here, it's not out there. Julianne and I, professionally speaking, faced some significant relational challenges in our previous location, in a a way that we didn't realize at the time negatively impacted our relationship. And in many ways, we viewed our move here to DC as a fresh start. And uh, at least on the exterior, things in D.C. Have, have been much better for us. But what I was not prepared for were the new challenge, and what I did not consider were the new challenges that awaited me here. During my time in D.C., well, before this, in our previous locations, it just seemed like the problems, most of the problems were out there. But here, the problem is, God has, I've wrestled with darkness in my own heart in a way that I never anticipated. God has convicted me through a variety of means of deep-rooted pride, an attitude of superiority, both which stem from insecurity. And in general, he's gone to great lengths to cultivate a heart of humility within me. As I processed our transition here, I only thought about the good that would come. And I really wish that I would have been more aware that moving to a location simply meant that I would need God in new and different ways here. And as we look ahead to 2016, as I mentioned in the introduction, I would imagine that many of you are looking for a fresh start. And while a fresh start might remove us from a difficult relationship, while it might provide us with better opportunities professionally, and it might even give us more financial freedom, from this story we learn that such desires for a fresh start are ultimately rooted in a a desire to be near God and to experience his presence. Any fresh start will be accompanied by a fresh need for God. And from this passage, not only do we learn about ourselves, but we learn about God. And more specifically, we learn that we need a better comforter. Though small in number at the time, humanity was looking to Noah for relief. While Noah is held up as a model of faith in Hebrews, this story clearly communicates that the true hero is yet to come. The hero of this story is our true and better comforter, Jesus Christ. And here's why. Remember that Genesis 6 marks death as God's plan in response to the wickedness of humanity. Because of the quick spiral back toward evil by Noah and his sons, this means that what God says in Genesis 6 is still upheld. Though God has promised to never destroy the earth through the form of a flood again, he continues to mark death as his plan in response to our wickedness and rebellion. And that never changes throughout the Bible. However, what does change is that God transfers whom he imposes death upon. Second Corinthians 521 speaks of Christ and says this, for our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Many of us are away from our hometowns here in D.C., but we all love to feel like we're at home, whether it's in somebody else's place or in our own place. And uh, one of the places that Julian and I feel most at home here in D.C. is Ted's Bulletin. When you go in, we go. We live close to Barracks Row, so they have the brick exterior. They're always showing old movies on the screen. They have a plethora of comfort food on the menu to choose from. The servers are friendly. The last couple of times we've gone, we've called ahead and been seated right as we walked in the door. Julianne and I like to go for brunch and we share the chicken biscuits and the mark on on an off day. And I never thought that anything could top Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits until I went to Ted's and uh, Chick-fil-A has found its match. But what tops off the experience for us is that how many times at a restaurant have you been thirsty or needed a refill and tried to wave the server down or tried to, you gotta find them, all this. Ted's alleviates that problem on the front end by bringing the coffee pot and sitting it at your table. And as a result, we leave wired, or at least I leave wired, I'll speak for myself. At Ted's, we pay $37 And at least for an hour, we feel like they say to us, what's mine is yours. And that's what God says to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. In Christ, God says, what's mine is yours. When it says that God made Christ to be sin, it means that God treated and regarded Christ as sinful, even though he had never sinned. And then in turn, he treats and regards us as if we had never sinned. In Christ, not only are we rescued from our spiritual bondage that both preceded the flood and that has continued on after the flood all the way up to our present day, but we also receive all the blessings, the spiritual blessings that God offers, including life, comfort, joy, hope, rest, peace, and so many more. And all of our New Year's resolutions are desires to start afresh. What we're ultimately looking for is relief in a broken and a dying world. As we look ahead to 2016, we need to remember that we can't make our lives better. We cannot, in and of ourselves, bring about relief from the, str- the strains and the pressures of life in a cursed and broken world. Though Christmas has come and gone, it's still appropriate to sing joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. We need a better comforter. We need the one who makes his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. In the midst of our toil, In a life where we are continually drawn to the idea of starting over. In a world where we are constantly longing for change. In Christ, God says to us, what's mine is yours. God extends to to you all of his spiritual blessings in Christ. God cries out to us and, and he says, will you by faith, receive and experience these blessings provisionally in this life and also by faith will you wait for the one who will provide both the physical and the spiritual relief in its fullness that our hearts are longing for. Please join me as I close us in prayer. Father, we confess that what we look for and change, what we think we can find and change, or better external circumstances, uh, God, we we confess and and we acknowledge that that can only be found in you. Jesus, we need you to make your blessings flow far as the curse is found. Would you help us to walk by faith and to believe that, that what our hearts are ultimately longing for has already been given to us through the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. May we wait for you to bring about this relief. And until then, Lord, would you make your blessings flow, far as the curse is found? In Jesus' name, amen.